Poor Blush Bear. I was wondering if he's going to sit down and wait for Kathy to sing before he came up. <laughs> no, uh, just, it's just hard getting up. <laughs> good morning. It's good to be here. Thank the Lord for His grace that has allowed us to assemble this morning. For better or for worse. We want to continue this morning our study in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So far we've, we've preached on the word of the cross, the death of the cross, the blood of the cross, the purpose of the cross, the triumph of the cross, and now this morning we'll look at one that is it's tough to swallow. The offense of the cross. Very convicting to me. I'll give you a text if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. We we'll read down through verse 25. It says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved is the power of God. Well, that's the truth, isn't it? Yeah. That's the thing that is the joy of our life as a child of God. But the world hates it. They hate it. <coughs> For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. That's why they hate it. It humbles them. It, it brings them down and they have to admit what they don't want to admit and uh, uh, many never admit it to their eternal damnation. Verse 20 says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified and the Jews a stumbling block and the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, that's the saved, you and I, if you know the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's everything to us, isn't he? Right. The offense of the cross, it's only truly offensive to those who are perishing in their unbelief. It's, it's, it's totally and completely offensive to them. As we'll see as we get into this message. But to the believer, it is a display of God's power like we've never seen anywhere else in Scripture. Amen. I think of God when He created the world. That was the power of God that, I mean, just think about it. You know, all these uh, high-minded people who, who think they know so much about uh, uh, the origin of this world know nothing 
they don't understand that it was the power of God that created this world. Yeah. I think about the Red Sea experience. Israel had never seen, in fact, they did not, they thought their, their end was, was right there. But God showed His power to them when He divided the Red Sea. I think that commercial, this black guy says, who does that? <laughs> who does that but God? God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He breathed down fire out of heaven. These aren't just figmented stories of people's imagination. These are fact of God's word. Archaeology proves that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by fire. But we take the Bible, the word for it, uh, far in advance of that. I think about the deliverance of God, of His people, through 40 years of wanderings, and 40 years where they uh, uh, constantly were carping at God, murmuring against God. All those are instances of God's power. But there is no evidence of God's power like we see on the cross. But men still want to deny God and to reject the Word of God in so many ways. The Bible says they will not receive the truth. As we've read time and time again in, in Romans chapter 1, mm -hmm. that men will just uh, refuse to believe it. It says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There's the power of God who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19, because that when they, that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. But they still deny it. They're clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they're without excuse. So men can deny God. They can disbelieve God all they want. But that's no excuse. And God's going to still hold them accountable. But because that when they knew God. They glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful. But became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. A man that thinks he's wise by saying, well, I, I'm a whole lot smarter than to believe what to their mind some man wrote. That's a foolish heart. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of God, the incorruptible God, into an image made like a corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, <coughs> and creeping things. That's why God gave them up to uncleanness. And I don't go ahead and read all that. You are familiar with that passage of Scripture. So it's offensive only to those who scoff at the Word of God. But to the believer, the preaching of the cross is the power of God, as we just read there in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 1, verse 18. And we know it's the power of God because we have been subdued by that power. You cannot convince me as a believer that the power of God is, 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 is non-existent. I know for a fact because God take, took me from being dead in my sins to being alive in Christ. I know the power of God. And each of you who know Him as well. So the cross is not foolishness to us. Because we have personal first-hand experience of how God moves in these mighty powerful ways. And we were recipients of it when we believed the message. No earthly power could do that. There's no eloquence of man or whatever that's going to convince you uh, to, believe, uh, to be saved. I've been in church services uh, where there's all kind of convincing being done by those in the pulpit. I mean, literally, the begging went on long after the preaching. And I was embarrassed to be there and couldn't wait to get out of there and wonder how I got there in the first place. But we know that God is powerful and we know His power. Christ's resurrection declared that to be uh, the power of God like no other evidence of God's power that we've ever seen. You know, men have to have miracles. Uh, These things or miracles or so-called miracles to them are, is the power of God. That's the, that was the great downfall of the Jew, wasn't it? They had to see a miracle. They had to see a sign over and over and over again. Remember when Christ confronted them and they, they wanted a sign? He said, you know, he, he, he'd given them all kinds of signs and all these miracles that he'd done. And then you can go back to the Old Testament and those same descendants, uh, their fathers were the same hard-headed and stubborn people who God would work miracle after miracle and yet they would not believe on Him. Men have to have miracles. That is, men fallen, men redeemed, have witness of the power of God because they've experienced it in their life. The Jews could read a lot of signs, couldn't they? unimportant signs but the most important sign it was like duh they, they failed they could read the sign but they failed to, uh, to read the scripture properly and the prophecies about the son of God uh, how many Old Testament scriptures did they know by heart they could recite verse and uh, chapter and verse but here he comes and they couldn't recognize him. They had a head knowledge. They didn't have a heart knowledge of God. Right. So the Greeks, it says here, seek after wisdom. 
And it's not the wisdom of God, it was worldly wisdom that they sought after. Obtained from the world. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 17 says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words. That was what they were all about. Wisdom of words. Wisdom of words is eloquence. Boy, people like, like eloquence, don't we, in preachers. Let me tell you what eloquence is. That is eloquence. There's nothing wrong with elegance. Eloquence when it's used properly by those using the Word of God properly. But eloquence alone and by itself is a sheath without a sword. Well, it looks good down there. Sounds good. It's like a ceremonial sword that these uh, military officers wear when they go to these big dinners and balls. It's never been in a battle. It's never been out of its sheath. It doesn't have any edge to it. It's not fit for battle. Poses no fear. Will slay no enemy. Pierces no heart. And often it distracts from the message. It robs the message of its focal point. It averts the hearer from the importance of the message. How many times have you heard people say this? Maybe we've been guilty of it. Boy, he sure could speak well. But what did he say? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> Boy, it sounded good. Eloquence is only beneficial to the speaker. Or if the speaker is wise and the hearer is obedient. Let me say that again. Eloquence is only beneficial if the speaker is wise. There's nothing wrong with eloquence if he's wise in his words. And there's nothing wrong with eloquence if you're obedient to it. But other than that, it serves no purpose. In Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 11 it says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. That's eloquence rightly dividing the word of God. I've heard some eloquent preachers and I wouldn't give you five cents for what they said. <laughs> Dan's shaking his head. We know some people like that. But I've heard common men not eloquent at all. And I don't think Paul was eloquent. And whether they'll pierce your heart with what they say. You know why? Because the word of God was used. So I'm not impressed by high sounding men with eloquence only. <coughs> the preacher that God calls is not concerned how he sounds to you, but how rightly he divides the word that he is given by God. 
so that it becomes effective to sinners who are perishing. To the Jew, and he's talking about it there, doesn't he? The Jews require a sign. <clears throat> the Jew put great stock in being a Jew as regards to their lineage. Yet forgetting God chose them to be his separate people. They were no longer separate, but it took great pride in that they were they could trace their lineage right back to God, but they weren't living for him. Yet they forget God who chose them to be a separate people, and further that they had strayed so far from his word that they forgot that their Messiah was prophesied to bear their sins on the cross, and that seeing this man, that is uh, Jesus Christ, there who declared he was a son of God, hanging between two thieves, and thought to be one with them, they stumbled over that. Right. You see. Were offended by it. Seeking instead a sign. How one spoke was more important to them than what they spoke. How they spoke, not what they spoke. Appearances were more important to them than substance. And you know this, but I'm going to tell you it anyway. Signs of whatever sort that you may uh, put stock in will never convince you if you're void of spiritual understanding to believe. That's what Christ was intimating to the Jews when he spoke to them of the sign of Jonah. Over there in Matthew chapter 12. In verse 38, he says, Then certain of the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we'd see a sign from thee. <laughs> He'd shown them all kinds of signs, but they still weren't satisfied. Right. They wanted another sign so they could say, No, that's not the one I'm looking for. Give me another one. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas and behold a greater than Jonas is here. So, the Jews had performed, or Jesus had performed miracle after miracle, but it fell on deaf ears. See, the Old Testament Jew never saw the miracles of God in the Old Testament in the light and, and for the purpose that God gave those signs. They never saw Jesus as a fulfillment of all prophecy. And to this day, they have not. And they still look for him. Spurgeon and his little book the gospel of the kingdom says the great sign of our Lord's mission and his, is his resurrection and his preparing a gospel of salvation for the heathen his life story is well symbolized by that of Jonah that's why 
That's why he spoke to them about it. And, but they, they didn't get it, did they? They cast our Lord overboard, that is Jonah's uh, 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 fellow sailors, even as the sailors did the man of God. The sacrifice of Jonah calmed the sea for the mariners. Our Lord's death made peace for us. Mm-hmm. Our Lord was a while in the heart of the earth as Jonah in the depth of the sea. But he arose again and his ministry was full of power of his resurrection. As Jonah's ministry was certified of his restoration, by his restoration from the sea, so was our Lord's ministry attested by his rising from the dead. The man who had come back from death and burial in the sea commanded the attention of all of Nineveh. The Savior, that is the risen Savior, demands the same attention and deserves the same obedient faith of all to whom his message comes. But sadly, it still falls on on deaf ears. Christ. We don't think about him enough. I don't. I don't think about him enough. Innocent. Without sin. Can't comprehend that. Never committed sin. Never had a never thought a sinful thought. Going about doing good. Never harmed a living soul. Living out his gospel and was delivered for our offenses. Mm-hmm. And yet they were offended at him on the cross. I'm telling you, you talk about something that shows the depravity of man to look at the cross and be offended by it. And yet all of us, before God saved us, and maybe you even here today, are offended by the gospel because it shows us, the cross shows us what we were. Or it would not have been necessary for the sinless Son of God to be crucified. My friend, the way of the natural sinful heart is always looking for something new. To satisfy the never satisfied sinful desires that we have. And even so often, I've been guilty of sitting in a service and hearing a man preach the gospel and thinking even, even if it briefly comes in and goes out, you know, maybe he could do better at that. That's being offended at the gospel. In the remainder of the message, I want to represent or present three questions for your consideration. Why is the cross a stumbling block? Why did I, before God saved me, not to want to hear anything about the cross? And I remember when I was uh, saved, and when way, way back, and years uh, away from the house of God, and I'd pull up behind a car with a bumper sticker that said, Jesus is Lord. And I despised that bumper sticker because it, it, it pricked my heart. Mm-hmm. As to where I was, my relationship with God. If you're not saved today, Christ's cross is a stumbling block. 
And God forbid if you're in a bad backslidden condition, Christ is a stumbling block as well to you, my friend. Because it's a stumbling block because to embrace Christ on the cross is to deny self. You have to die to self. Scripture talks about crucifying the Lord. <coughs> I need a Kleenex, brother. I don't know why. Thought you was always prepared for the Kleenex. I did. I If we give over all of our trusting that we're trusting in and cast that at his feet, you see, we don't want to do that. And until we are willing to cast everything at Christ's feet, he's going to be an offense. It requires us to be made willing to cry. Remember how the old uh, 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 leper in the Old Testament, when he'd come near, they'd say, unclean, unclean. Well, that's what we can cry to ourselves. Unclean, unclean. Because we are as lepers in God's sight without Christ. And as we are uh, uh, strained from God. That's why Paul said, Oh, wretched man that I am. Not that I was, but even now, long been saved, preaching the gospel. Paul says, I'm a wretched man. You see, the cross was a death blow to human pride and worldly honor and glory. And to identify with that is to say, I count it all but loss. A natural man does not want to do that. Saved man does not want to do that. We, we still hate to give God the full credit. We somehow want to take a little bit of that credit. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7 and 8. Paul said, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but done that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now at another time he said, uh, that which I would I do not, and that which I would not that I do, O wretched man that I am. You remember the rich young ruler? He stumbled right here, didn't he? He stumbled right there. God said, you know, you got to give all and follow me. It says he went away sorrowful. Right. When God saves you, you will not have to give everything you've got. I don't know that he ever required that of any man. He requires a lot of his preachers sometimes. But he wants you to be willing to give it all. And you will be willing to give it all. Paul said, I count it all but done. So the rich young ruler stumbled there. What about the self-righteous Pharisee? He would not. 
yield up his legal pride, his own self-righteousness. Romans chapter 10. Verse 1 through 3. His brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness. Have not submitted themselves into the righteousness of God. That's why the cross is a stumbling block to such as those. When one is made willing to lose his life, and that's where we come to when God saves us, he will save his life in a sense. Truly the natural mind does not perceive spiritual things until God breaks us and gives us a sight to see the difference. Surely one of the sharpest barbs hurled at Christ was the assault on his deity. If Thou be the Son of God, come down for the cross. Think how much that must have cut into him. You know, that's the that's, that's taunt of wickedness in high places. That's the taunt that I cast at Christ before he saved me. You know, I kept in my mind, it was just like the Pharisee, if, if, if. If, if I could grasp this, if I could believe this, if I could believe what he says about me, if, 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 then I could be saved. But those ifs, because I stumbled at the cross of Christ, I couldn't get over. If they were sons of God, they would have embraced the cross. They said, if thou be the Son of God. Declaring that they were not sons of God. Only a spiritual mind understands spiritual things. The natural mind stumbles at the cross. Because it's a self-life. That can't abide a selfless life. I'm sure you've been around people that are so selfish <laughs> that it really, it really, it's hard on you, isn't it? We kind of think, oh, they think they, you know, we got these thoughts about them that's not too good. When maybe all they're trying to do is serve God and maybe they're giving of themselves and dying better than we are. <coughs> and we can't stand to see it even in others. How much less can we stand to see it when we look at the cross? The natural mind stumbles at Calvary. It has in the past. It always will. Because a self-life will not abide a selfless life. For it robs us of our self-glory. Do not stumble at the cross, my friend. It's the place where sinners are reconciled and made righteous. 
One of my favorite verses, Romans 5, chapter 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Right. Yet peradventure for a good man, someone even dares die. But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's why we despise the cross. I love that old song. Up on the cross of Jesus, my eye at times can see the holy, the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. I think Fanny Cross wrote that. I'm not sure Fanny Crosby. So, that's why the Christ is a, or cross is a stumbling block. Now, who are they that stumbled? You see, in Scripture, God sees men in two groups. This world, and, and uh, we have, you know, you're in this group or this group. You may be middle class, low class. Got all kind of different classes. India has different castes. C-A-S-T-E. But God only sees two kind of men. Two groups of men. Those who worship the one true God and those who worship other gods. In our text there in 1 Corinthians 18, 24 and verse 24, Paul speaks of the Jew and the Gentile. And these two are representative classes of people there in Paul's letter. And we see how each was made to stumble. The Jews stand for the religious who call upon God with all, his, all of His works. You've known them and you've been one if you're saved now. You know, surely I can do something to please God. There's, a, there's an old Pharisee in every man before God saves him. And so they stand for the religions. There's a lot of people who are not saved, but they're mighty religious. They go to church every day. They pray every day. I've got Catholic friends across the house, uh, across the street. Every morning when I get up, I'll go up front and either read or pray or something. And I'll see them get out and go to church hard before I do and come back. They've been to Mass down there taking a the wafer. They never fail. <laughs> That's religion. And that's religion will take you to hell. Right. Because Christ is the only substitute for our sins. Colossians 1.7 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Mm-hmm. One man said that Christ to the Jew was a stumbling block and the Gentile a laughing stock. See, because they had all this pride of, of wisdom of, of, of their life. And something so uh, worldly and, and common was repugnant to the high and mighty religious. What's Isaiah 52 and verse 3 say? I should know that, but the old ticker here, or the old brain ain't what it used to be. Isaiah 52 and verse 3 says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. You see. He was the lively root that would give life to the dry ground which was Israel. And which is you this morning if you're here without Christ. <coughs> you're just dried up and shriveled. 
in God's sight. There's, there's no life in you without the Lord. The Jew, religious, he has a habit of prayer, saying prayers, regular at the house of God. He gives of his earnings for the upkeep of the place of worship. He has no fellowship with the wicked world in their habits, and so he's sought well of in his community. He's very religious and self-righteous. But he has no sense of sin. He has no need of the atoning blood. He can see mercy in the cross, but he himself needs no mercy. His works will carry him through, thank you very much. Being self-righteous, he has no need of God's righteousness. Because the cross strips him of all self-righteousnesses. And that the Jew will not die to. Neither will you, if you're without Christ, trusting in yourself. And so therefore he stumbles. And maybe this morning you're stumbling. I can't bring, I can't bring myself to bow down before God. And cry out, be merciful to me a sinner. Men will not admit to God that their soul is God's. And they must give answer to what they do with it. That's the religious man. But the Greek, these boil down as a representative of knowing everything or desiring to know everything in the world. It's art, it's culture, it's philosophy, as if that would impress God. You've seen those and know those. Maybe we've been one of those. You see, in Paul's day, there in Acts, the men flocked to Greece to learn some new thing there in Acts 17.21. And Athens was the cultural center of the world. And they still think they are. But for all the learning that they supposedly had, they were given to idols. That doesn't tell you much about somebody's spiritual life, does it? The true God was unknown to them. When Paul preached to them the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the most part of them mocked God. He says there in 17, uh, 32 through 34 of Acts, some mocked, but some wanted to hear. Maybe you're like that this morning. But then it says, but praise God, some believed. Maybe that'll happen today. The gospel introduced them to the true God who before to them was a foolish imagination because they were worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. Their need was to turn from idols and serve the living and true God. So just quickly, what is the cross really? What does a crucified cross represent to us who believe? Well, I've already said it. It's the power of God. We hear so often, as I mentioned earlier about preachers, Boy, he's a powerful preacher. When really what we mean is he has a commanding voice. It's more scriptural to say the preaching of the cross is the power of God. I've been in services and I've, uh, uh, before I was saved and I've seen godly men walk out and they say, man, now that's preaching. I've been in places like that and I leave as a saved man and say, boy, that's preaching. Oh, he wasn't dressed very good. <laughs> he looked like the devil. <laughs> all beat up and all. 
I'm going to mention somebody, and somebody here knows his name, Kitty Cade. You know him, Dan? I don't know if you do. The ribby little old thing. Couldn't talk real good. But he preached the truth. A lot of people didn't want to listen to him because of what he looked like. That's his heart. He was faithful to the Lord. You say, more scriptures say, boy, he preached the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for that very reason. Because it's the power of God in salvation. Not what I say, not how I say it. It's Christ's death, buried and resurrected, and witnessed by thousands. That's the power of God in preaching the cross. It raises the dead in their sins that they may say, I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was blind, but now I see. It's the wisdom of God. There's that old song by Fanny Crosby, In the cross, in the cross. Be my glory ever. Mm-hmm. Romans eleven thirty three says, "Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out." Often we, like Job, would question God in in His wisdom at different times in our life by things that are happening. And we lay out in an orderly way our argument before God is to, you know, Lord, why are you doing this and why are you doing that? But in His wisdom, He evades us so that we, we cannot perceive His answer. He, he, doesn't, he's, he doesn't draw near unto us because we have a, a doubtful mind. But eventually, we come around, don't we? Because God's moving in our life. (coughs) So let us boldly order our cause, knowing He was wisely ordered our way in all of our appointments. So in the meanwhile, let us reverently fear Him. So I pray that God might bless His Word this morning. There you go. Thank Lord for the